really jarring how almost overnight we go from being mom to a sweet kid to the mother of a teenager who then grows older and more confusing to deal with by the day. My son was in the sixth grade in 2012 when they sent the entire class home from school with their own iPad. All the parents were scrambling that first day because every single one of our kids went straight to Instagram and had a thousand followers before they went to bed that night. All through middle school and then high school, there was something new to learn or decide or discuss almost every single day. It was nuts. Not many of us realize how drastically and quickly things change when that first child hits middle school. In today's episode, I'm going to explain why when our kids hit puberty, not only do they start getting stinkier and hairier, they become a little harder to deal with. They're not as sweet, they don't seem to like us as much, and they're not as cooperative or energetic as they used to be. But they're certainly moodier, opinionated, emotional, hot-tempered, and often just don't seem to have much sense. You're listening to Speaking of Teens, a weekly show to help you better understand and parent your teen or tween. I'm Ann Coleman, and after surviving a couple of difficult years with my teenage son, I decided to make the leap from practicing law into the science of parenting teens and tweens. I want to make sure you have the skills I was sorely lacking. Up until just over 20 years ago, science, society, and parents had blamed adolescent behavior on hormones and laziness, rebellion, a feeling of invincibility and lack of respect for authority, whatever else we could think of. Most scientists believed the brain was finished growing and changing by kindergarten by around age five or six. So, of course, adolescent behavior couldn't have anything to do with the changes taking place in the brain. Those particular scientists either didn't have kids or they didn't have kids over the age of 10. I'm assuming it was the scientists with tweens and teens who argued that their brains had to be completely neurobiologically different from ours. And in 1999, a team of scientists who'd been studying the brain for 20 years using MRI technology concluded that some quite significant changes take place in certain regions of the brain throughout adolescence, that is from around age 10 or 12, to somewhere in the mid-20s at least. So it seems adolescence is the second major phase of brain growth, and it lasts way too dang long, like 15 freaking years. And for the past 20 years, scientists have studied how these changes impact adolescents' thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. And what they've learned explains a whole lot. I honestly think there should be a mandatory class for all parents when that first kid reaches about fourth or fifth grade, because not understanding what our kid's brain does to them really puts us at a disadvantage. It's so confusing for us when we see their head start spinning and spewing pea soup. I mean, somebody could have told us this was going to happen. Just knowing everyone else's kid is doing the same or similar things would help a little bit. Knowing that they're literally at the mercy of their brain and that they're not doing this on purpose and that it's not a reflection of our parenting and that they're actually doing the best they can, this would help us have more empathy for them during their not-so-Facebookable moments. We need this empathy to make it through adolescence with them. 
to help them manage these thoughts and emotions and behaviors to remind us that it's not about us. It's still all about them until we get that brain finished. So let me back up a minute and give you the big picture. Like I said, adolescence is the second big push for the brain to change and grow and get to sort of a a finish point, although it's really never completely finished. But that first big push, of course, is from birth to about age three. This is when the fundamental building blocks of the brain, the neurons or brain cells, are being constructed and connected and programmed, and they expand as a baby and then toddler learns and experiences new things. And this programming is about 95% complete by the time a child is around five or six. But there's still that 5% to go. And that, my friend, is what adolescence is for. This tiny 5% of brain programming that makes such a huge impact on our kids, it starts when a kid hits puberty between ages 10 and 12, earlier for girls than for boys. To explain what happens with the brain's neurons at this point, let me give you a visual. Picture a tall tree with lots of branches, and it's pulled out of the ground, floating in midair, and you can see the roots. These trees represent the brain's neurons. Now picture lots of those trees, or neurons, floating around and connecting to other trees, branches to roots. Everywhere there's a branch, it's connecting to another tree's roots. And where these roots and branches meet up, a signal or message passes from one tree or neuron to the other. And that little junction where the message passes over is called a synapse. And the chemical messages the neurons pass from one to another are called neurotransmitters. You've heard of them like serotonin, dopamine, cortisol, That's how neurons communicate to each other and how they form networks that communicate from one area of the brain to another and from the brain to all other parts of the body. And what happens right before puberty is the neurons in the frontal lobe of the brain suddenly sprout billions of additional branches to join up with other roots, which means there are billions of additional synapses through which to pass messages or neurotransmitters. Then when the child hits puberty about a year later, these synapses begin the long and slow process of pruning and strengthening. Just picture all the dead tree limbs or the synapses the brain's not using being pruned away so that the remaining branches, the synapses the brain is using on a regular basis, they become stronger and faster and more efficient at passing neurotransmitters, at communicating. So they're used even more often and get even stronger and faster. And whatever it is they're learning becomes really ingrained. So we'll talk more about this in a minute. But this pruning and strengthening is based on what the kid is experiencing and learning. The more they learn, experience, or do a certain thing, the stronger the synaptic connections become for that particular thing. For example, let's say your child is into acting. The more they do it during adolescence, the better they will get, and that skill will likely stick. But if they fail to learn or do a particular thing, 
those synapses are pruned, which makes it harder to learn that particular thing later on after adolescence. For example, scientists have found that there are certain academic skills that are best learned at particular stages of adolescence. I believe a certain type of math is one. So if a kid fails to learn this type of math skill during that age range, those synapses are pruned, making it harder to learn that particular skill later in life. Like I said, this pruning and strengthening or brain programming starts at puberty in the synapses at the back of the frontal lobe of the brain, then gradually moves through the synapses working towards the front, ending up in the prefrontal cortex. And we'll talk about what this means for the adolescent and for us in a minute. This synaptic pruning and strengthening process goes on from puberty all the way somewhere through the mid-20s at least before the brain's finally considered fully mature. The exact age depends on the individual. It could be early 20s to late 20s. I just want to point this out because you've heard this word thrown around, no doubt. This ability for the brain to reorganize itself by pruning and strengthening and making new synaptic connections based on what a person is exposed to and what they learn through experience. This is called neuroplasticity. And during adolescence, the brain is its most plastic ever. All these synapses strengthening and pruning based on what a kid does or doesn't experience, what they learn or fail to learn. That's why it's so important that we and our kids understand how this neuroplasticity works. It can be really empowering for a young person to understand the power they have to mold their own brain, even if they've always thought they were bad in a certain subject in school, for instance. After puberty starts, they basically get kind of a do-over. The more they use those synapses during adolescence for that subject, the stronger they get and the easier that subject becomes. It's the fact that practice and repetition equal mastery, and that's because it strengthens those synapses. So intelligence is not static by any means. Now, there's a downside to neuroplasticity as well. Remember, practice and repetition equals mastery, and the brain makes no distinction between strengthening positive versus negative synaptic connections. That means our teens and tweens get really good at whatever it is they spend their time doing. The activities they're involved in, the environments they're exposed to, and the people they spend time with, it all has a huge impact on them, their brain, their behavior, once a synaptic connection is solidified in the adolescent brain, for better or worse, it sticks. In other words, it's harder to unlearn what's learned during adolescence. So that's great news if they've mastered algebra or pole vaulting or the violin, but really bad news if instead they've become addicted to nicotine or spent all their time gaming, or drinking, or smoking weed. That's why it's so important for our teens to be involved in as many positive activities and exposed to as many positive influences and environments as possible while, at the same time, avoiding the negative. And the more positive activities they're involved in, 
the less time they have to spend on the negative. Of course, it's easier said than done, which is why studies show that supervision of and connection with our teens is critical. The research says that teens with a parent or responsible adult at home with them after school or those in adult supervised after school activities are less likely to steal, drink, smoke weed or harm other people. It's so important to recognize parental supervision or supervised activities as a preventative to negative activities or poor choices. I think we have a tendency after all those years of having to be there and watch every move to kind of take a big sigh of relief when they finally get to go to the neighborhood pool alone or ride their bike to the store, which is all good, but we've still got to be there and on top of things. And I'll be the first to admit that even being at home after school with them, that doesn't always work either. One of us was always at home after school with our son, and he still managed to smoke weed down the street at a friend's house for an entire school year before we realized it. But then again, we had let him talk us out of sports heading into high school because of his anxiety. So we made mistakes, which is why I'm talking to you now. One of the big problems we have as a mom is deciding what and how many positive activities do we involve our kids in? How hard do we push if they're hesitant? Overscheduling and lack of sleep is a real problem for teens too, so finding the right balance is tricky. Personally, I believe if they're busy every day after school, it's a real advantage. It's simple math. More time spent on positive pursuits equals less time to spend on the negative. Help them find their passion. Don't balk at the expense if you can swing it. I can assure you an expensive extracurricular activity or hobby is a hell of a lot better than paying for counselors, rehab, or an attorney. So back to what's going on in the prefrontal cortex and why supervision is so important. As I mentioned earlier, this whole synaptic pruning and strengthening process begins in the back of the frontal lobe, and over time, it moves toward the very front of the brain, or the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex is the very last area of the brain to be fully programmed, and that's where much of this pruning and strengthening is concentrated during adolescence. And because the prefrontal cortex is in a state of flux throughout adolescence, it's much less capable of doing its job, which is to handle the brain's executive functions. And this is about to make a whole lot of sense to you. Executive functions are things like organizing thoughts, reasoning, solving problems, planning ahead, changing plans on the fly, focusing attention, ignoring distractions, multitasking, watching out for errors, making quick decisions, Delaying gratification, managing intense emotions, behaving appropriately under specific circumstances, and making good decisions and using self-control. It's all making so much more sense now, isn't it? These are the very skills they need for school, work, maintaining relationships, staying out of trouble, and doing almost everything required of them every day. By the time kids hit puberty, the official start of adolescence, some basic executive functions are already in place, obviously, 
but they are slowly refined as all those synapses are strengthened over the next 15 years or so. Gradually, they'll get better and better at doing all this stuff at the right time and in the right way. But during this entire developmental period, from around fifth grade through their mid-20s or so, each adolescent's ability to engage in these various executive functions varies wildly. Some kids are capable of making adult-type decisions at 15, while others still can't manage that at 29. Some have self-control of a 50-year-old at 13, while others have absolutely none at age 22. A person's ability to engage these executive functions depends on their early environment, their genes, birth order, temperament, and many other factors like ADHD and learning issues and mental health problems like anxiety or bipolar disorder. Generally speaking, the executive functions teens really need the most are the ones they're most lacking, the ability to use self-control and make good decisions. When a teenager lacks self-control and the ability to make good decisions, they could have a really hard time regulating their emotions, avoiding conflict, not talking in class, and stopping themselves from driving too fast, or choosing to study for a test rather than playing video games all night. Again, it depends on the individual child. But on top of the prefrontal cortex not helping much at all with self-control and making good decisions, there are two other areas of the adolescent brain that become even more sensitive and reactive during adolescence that could really use a little help from the prefrontal cortex. We'll talk about the amygdala first. The amygdala, the region of the brain that impacts emotion. And during adolescence, It's much more reactive or sensitive than any other time during our lives. And when you combine the supercharged emotional amygdala together with the prefrontal cortex with an inability to control it, you get some of the most problematic characteristics of adolescence, including impulsivity, emotional reactivity, extreme emotional highs and lows, and difficulty regulating emotions. In other words, a moody, irrational, dramatic, emotional, brooding, door slamming adolescent. Acne can be emotionally painful for your teen. Hey there, it's Anne, and I'm thrilled to introduce you to Phyla, an effective, side effect free, natural product that can help them. Phyla contains the first scientific breakthrough in acne treatment in 40 years. Today's teens are still dealing with their acne the way we did, with harsh chemicals that leave your face feeling like it's going to crack. Phyla's superpower is in its probiotic phages, which are naturally found in acne-free skin. The scientific research shows these phages reduce acne-causing bacteria by up to 90% without destroying the skin's microbiome. So your kid's skin looks and feels amazing, and they get to reclaim their confidence. Phyla is going to be a game-changer. 
head over to phyla.com, that's P-H-Y-L-A, and use the coupon code SPEAKINGOFTEENS to claim 25% off your first order. The link is right there in the episode description where you're listening. So, what does the amygdala do exactly to cause such problems for our teens and tweens? Let's start with what it does for all of us. The amygdala is the brain's threat detector, and it sounds an alarm in the brain when we see, hear, feel, smell, or touch something that feels threatening. A car about to hit us, a snake on the ground, or a loud noise right next to our ear. That alarm triggers certain hormones and neurotransmitters, like adrenaline and cortisol, to be released in the brain and travel from neuron to neuron throughout the brain and the body. This automatically causes changes in our body. Our heart races, we might sweat, tremble, breathe heavier, and we instantly and automatically react to the threat. We fight off the danger, get away from it, or sometimes just freeze in place like a deer in the headlights. And at the same time, we'll either feel some level of anger or a range of fear or nervousness, depending on whether we're fleeing fighting or freezing. This reaction is called the fight, flight, or freeze reaction. Fight or flight for short. Now this response was really helpful for prehistoric humans when they lived in the wild and faced real physical dangers every day. But in our modern society, we're rarely confronted with life-threatening situations. The problem is the amygdala has not evolved as quickly as society and it still immediately responds to anything it perceives as the least bit threatening. Better safe than sorry, right? So everyone's amygdala often overreacts, causing the fight-or-flight response by mistake. For example, have you ever seen that Halloween video on YouTube? I think it's actually from the late 90s, with the guy dressed up as a scarecrow sitting in a chair on the front porch. He's holding the bowl of candy for the kids so they can just reach in and get it themselves. And so he can move and give them a little fun scare. And this older guy walks up on the porch by himself to grab some candy and the scarecrow lunges a little and the guy automatically punches him right in the face. Not a bit of thinking involved, a totally automatic amygdala response. He was fighting the danger his amygdala automatically perceived. The same thing happens when someone pretends to throw something in your face. You put your hand up to deflect it, even if there's nothing there. If someone jumps out from behind a door, you might scream, jump, or like the guy with Scarecrow, throw a punch. Now, this fight or flight reaction can save our life if the danger is real, if something was really going to hurt us. But if the danger is not real, the amygdala is mistaken, like the paper wad or the Scarecrow, What happens next depends on whether you're an adult or a teen. When an adult's amygdala makes a mistake, we realize it's somebody just kidding around or it's a rope on the floor, not a snake. The prefrontal cortex jumps in and helps us calm down and stop screaming or jumping or running or being afraid almost immediately. But depending on the circumstances, this may not be true for the adolescent amygdala because the prefrontal cortex is still being programmed 
and is often too weak to step in and help with a little self-control and rational thinking. And to make matters worse, the adolescent amygdala is so super sensitive that it makes a lot more mistakes than a kid's or an adult's. So we really never know what's going to trigger a tween or teen's amygdala. It can be a bit of a crapshoot until you start looking for certain patterns in your own kid. What this means, practically speaking, is that adolescents get angry, frustrated, annoyed, nervous, afraid of things that seem to come out of left field. They completely baffle us and they just can't calm down on their own. They may totally freak out over a pop quiz, shut down and not be able to think of a single answer. A sibling may look at them a certain way, and they might explode. Or we tell them they can't go somewhere, and they have a complete meltdown. Much of the time, we may not even know what triggered their amygdala. And the behavior they exhibit during the fight, flight, or freeze mode also depends on the child, the circumstances, and whether they're nervous, angry, sad. They might scream and yell, cry, sulk, or put a fist through a wall, or curl up in a ball on their bed and cry. It can be scary and confusing for us as a parent, but it can be just as scary and confusing for them. They may be trying to figure out why they feel what they feel and what exactly it is they feel. It's it's not fun for them to feel so out of control. And you know what makes the amygdala, the adolescent amygdala, even more reactive? Stress. You know, when you're already stressed out about something and that least little thing can set you off? Well, this is certainly true for teens and tweens. Stress gives the amygdala a hair trigger. Stress also makes it even harder for teens and tweens to use their prefrontal cortex to make good decisions and use self-control. And we all know that teens and tweens are under a tremendous amount of stress. But even if you don't agree that teens are under enormous stress, it's been shown that an adolescent's perceived stress has the same emotional and psychological impact as actual stress. Their perception is reality. So it really doesn't matter what we think. If they think their stress is enormous, it's enormous. So what about anxiety? Are stress and anxiety the same thing? Actually, stress is caused by external forces like school pressures and boyfriend-girlfriend issues or a problem in the family. Stress is caused by what's happening all around us right now. It's real. I have a big history test tomorrow, a public speaking project due, and my boyfriend just broke up with me last night. That's stress. And anxiety is what's going on inside. It's an internal state a sort of ambiguous, threatened feeling, or it could even be caused by our own thoughts about some sort of real threat or danger, or one we've totally imagined that might happen in the future. When we're anxious about something, like, what if I fall on the stage? What if the storm blows the roof off our house? Um, it, It causes us to be on edge, to expect something to happen at any minute, which means the amygdala is primed and ready 
to make a mistake at all times, which leads to even more false alarms. This is how anxiety disorders develop in our teens, interpreting something as a threat when it's really not a threat. Each time the amygdala makes a mistake and perceives something non-threatening as a threat, that perceived threat becomes more deeply embedded in the amygdala's memory. This means it's more likely to make that mistake again and again. The brain invents a threat from nothing. It's not a surprise that anxiety disorders are all too common in adolescence. Almost 32% of the adolescent population will suffer from some form of anxiety disorder by the time they turn 18. Again, not a surprise, females are twice as likely as males to suffer from an anxiety disorder between puberty and age 50. I so wish I'd known all this before my son hit puberty. He'd always had intense emotions, anxiety, and ADHD, so we were used to dealing with all the studying issues and homework battles and meltdowns, but when he turned 15, his anxiety began ramping up and up, and by 16 or so, he was acting out in all sorts of negative ways. He started totally flying off the handle about things that made no sense to us, My husband and I would look at each other and afterwards think, oh my God, I mean, this is so totally irrational. What is he thinking? He would get angry about something completely innocuous and just go off in a complete rage. Meltdowns over what we saw as nothing. Like I said, he'd always been prone to meltdowns and did have anxiety, but this was next level. He was almost 18 years old before I began to understand what had been going on, the neurobiological changes, his out-of-control emotions, and how we could help and make our relationship stronger, which is why I started Neuragility and this podcast and why I do what I do with parents. So remember this. From around fifth grade until they're at least halfway through their 20s, your kid's brain is in a state of reorganization and programming. This means their behavior will be driven by emotion rather than rational thinking. It'll be much easier for them to learn both positive and negative things, so they're more prone to anxiety and addiction. They'll confound you, infuriate you, and challenge you, but in the back of your mind, you'll remember They're doing the best they can with the brain they have. Knowing this will allow you to be more understanding and empathetic when they're in the middle of a meltdown or yell at you for no reason. Just imagine them as a toddler again, throwing a tantrum. It's virtually the same thing because their brain is going through the same process. What would you do when they were a toddler? Remind yourself they're not doing this on purpose for spite or to make you mad. It's not a reflection of your parenting, and most importantly, it won't last forever. Speaking of Teens is the official podcast of Neuragility.com, an organization I started to educate other moms and adolescents about emotional intelligence. You can go to Neuragility.com forward slash three for this episode's show notes, where you can also download an ebook about the adolescent brain. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really appreciate it. And if you found it interesting, helpful, or inspiring in some way, please share it with a friend and come back for future episodes. New shows drop every Tuesday morning. And if you have an idea for a future show or suggestions for how to improve the podcast, please reach out to me through the website or my email in the episode description where you're listening. I'd love to hear from you.